Hello, welcome to another episode of My Dad's Video Store. I'll be your host, BC Jones. On this week's episode, we will be exploring a dark period for the family-friendly corporation that we all know as Disney. In the late 70s and early 80s, under the control of Walt's son-in-law, Ron Miller, Disney produced a string of edgier kids' movies that would seem very out of place for the House of Mouse today. We will explore four of those darker entries, The Black Hole from 1979, The Watcher in the Woods from 1980, Something Wicked This Way Comes from 1983, and last but not least, 1985's Return to Oz. Join us as we plunge into the depths of Disney's dark side on this month's episode of My Dad's Video Store. Alright, as always, joining me to discuss these creepy kids' films will be fellow co-hosts of the pod, Waylon Bacon and Gray Creasy. Hello, friends! How are we today? Good. Doing very well. Excellent, excellent. Alright, well, before we dive into the collective childhood trauma that we all experience, uh, let's just give a little bit of a history of where Disney was at this juncture. So Walt had died unexpectedly in the late 60s, and then Walt's brother um, Roy took over until around 1980, when Ron Miller, who was Walt's son-in-law, took over as CEO. Ron had been groomed by Walt as a producer and an executive producer, and he had produced a lot of the films for Disney uh, over the past decade or so. He really wanted to make non-Disney films. There's this sort of like famous story of Walt and Ron and everybody watching To Kill a Mockingbird. After they watched it, they were all like, wow, I I really wish we could make that film. But we can't. We're stuck with G-rated kids entertainment. They wanted to really branch out of this, especially Ron did. And with the advent of the blockbuster um, after Jaws and Star Wars, the writing was on the wall that they needed to basically adapt or, you know, Disney could potentially perish. This was actually the lowest period and least profitable uh, era of Disney in their history. They almost got acquired by other companies until Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg took over in 1984. They steered Disney back to animated classics like The Little Mermaid, The Lion King, etc. And now it's the Disney that we all know and love today. Just a little, like, kind of background on that, because Ron Miller either produced or he greenlit all of the films that we're going to discuss today. So I just wanted to give folks a little bit of background, because we're probably going to be mentioning, you know, Ron Miller, Roy Disney, etc., over the course of the discussion. Let's dive into the films Disney wants you to forget about. Um, Especially, they don't want you to watch Watcher in the Woods and Something Wicked This Way Comes. (laughs) They really don't. Those are, neither one of those are on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, no, and not streaming, nowhere, and actually, in fact, Something Wicked goes for, like, upwards of $60 on physical media on eBay. No way. Wow. And it used to be everywhere. You could get it at Target for, like, $7. Yeah, Yeah. and this has only been in the past five years or so. It's just vanished, and Watcher in the Woods is nowhere. They've just buried these films. It's wild. I also could just know the the only place that, uh, the only place that we could find Watcher in the Woods was YouTube. Yeah. 
Yeah, and there's multiple versions of it as well, which we'll get into when we discuss Watcher in the Woods. Well, without further ado, let's kick things off and discuss The Black Hole from 1979. All right, Gray, could you kind of help synopsize The Black Hole for our audience? Yeah, sure. So uh, The Black Hole is, I mean, it's essentially a Captain Nemo or a Captain Ahab story in space, but with a black hole in place of like a giant sea beastie. And I'd argue that Maximilian Schell might have even been uh, a better Nemo than James Mason, <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> Best thing about the movie for me. But <laughs> so we start with the intrepid deep space exploration crew of the tiny exploration ship, the Palomino, and they're getting ready to head back to Earth and they come upon Black Hole with mysteriously another uh, deep space exploration ship, the Cygnus, that is utterly still... Uh, essentially outside of the event horizon of this black hole, which is a physical impossibility. It has not moved a millimeter since it's been there for 20 years because they're like, holy crap, that's the Cygnus. One of the members of the the Palomino, which is Dr. Kate, our ESP scientist, because it's the 70s, someone has to have ESP. (laughs) Uh, Her father was on that ship and she's like, that's my dad's ship. What the heck? The crew of the Palomino investigate the ship. It suddenly turns on like a Christmas tree, led onto the ship by these sentry robots with really bad knees uh, that, that, uh, <laughs> that can't walk right. And <laughs> Sostive defects. <laughs> right, right. And uh, they're led onto this like creepy tomb-like ship. Every, everyone has a different take on it because, you know, the, the crew is comprised of like, you know, the sort of no-nonsense uh, Captain Dan, who's Robert Forrester, Let's go get him, Lieutenant Chuck, who's Joseph Bottoms, and uh, the the ship historian and journalist, Ernest Borgnine, and then the sort of civilian scientist team leader, Anthony Perkins. So it's it's a really great cast of uh, different niches to fill. Everybody's got somebody to relate to. And then, of course, Vincent, the... I really appreciated Vincent the robot because he's less lovable (laughs) and more of, like, sarcastic and weirdly philosophical. Like, he's a really great... Interesting robot choice for a Disney movie. So anyway, they get led onto this ship and they discover the mad genius scientist, uh, Dr. Reinhardt, who's the ship captain. But what they slowly realize is the whole crew is robots of different varieties. There's like the sentries who are lorded over by Maximilian, this big scary robot with like salad spinner hands. Like he's really scary. And uh, then there's another crew of robots that are just tending the ship and they're weird and that'll become an issue later but they're all they they realize that reinhardt they're like where's the crew and he's like oh well we were at you know we our ship was bombarded by meteors 20 years ago so i sent the crew back to earth i evacuated them and they're like well hey we were on earth they never got there so that's suspicion number one anyway they go he's like well take whatever you need for my ship fix your ship go back to earth i'm never going back to earth because i have figured out a power source that can fight the gravity of a black hole to the point where my ship has been stable near the event horizon of a black hole. And they're all like, holy crap, that's insane. That's impossible. Except for Anthony Perkins. He's into it. He gets seduced by Reinhardt, which is a theme of all of these movies. People getting seduced by a mad genius of some sort. You know, there's always the one person who's really into it. Suspicions keep going throughout the movie. There's a weird space funeral that the robots are doing and they're like, why are there's there funerals for these robots? And why is there this giant uh, garden on this ship when there's only one human being supposedly on the ship? Uh, so suspicions keep arising 
as they're trying to fix their ship, and then they find out Reinhardt has a plan to actually go into the black hole, through the black hole, to find the ultimate knowledge. It's all very vague. It's all very 70s, <laughs> early 80s. And they're like, you can't do that. And of course, what they end up finding out is the weird robots that are tending the ship are actually the crew. Sort of lobotomized human beings that are being kept alive. Energy zapping machine that is like turning them into these half-human, half-cyborg nightmares. That turns everybody, even Anthony Perkins, against Dr. Reinhardt. But by then it's too late. He has piloted the ship into the black hole. That leads into a utterly ridiculous... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> protracted, nonsensical, but really fun uh, series of robot shootouts and chase scenes that sends them all, I might add, into the middle of uh, deep space in an event horizon with no helmets uh, for a protracted period of time. But by then, it doesn't matter. If you're with it up to that point, you don't care. And, and I might add, it's the only time in the whole movie, and I give credit to this, where we actually see the wires. Like, you can see the wires on Dr... On, uh, uh, Lieutenant Dan, flipping him around in, in deep space. Then everybody gets into the black hole. Reinhardt and Maximilian the robot, and that couldn't have been an accident that they named the robot Maximilian, and the actor's name is Maximilian Shell, because they end up melding with one another. I think it was an accident, but... <laughs> in, in Reinhardt's own version of Hell, yeah. while our heroes end up going down this weird mirror tunnel uh, in, into their, I guess, version of Heaven, or it could be Earth at the end, and we get all this mirror imagery that will come back in every single movie that we're talking about today. Yeah, and we get sort of a uh, Budget Man's, you know, 2001 ending. Probably overly long short synopsis of the black hole. <laughs> <laughs> Much like watching the film itself. <laughs> yeah, you really covered the whole breadth of the film. You know, it's interesting. Uh, everyone compares this movie to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. An apt comparison. But there's another film I think this movie is even more like. It's like the old dark house, the James Whale, Boris mm. Karloff pre-code film. And like, instead of a rainy night, it's the event horizon of a black hole. You know, the old dark house is this old dark ship that appears to be abandoned. And then they get on there and it's this complete mystery of what has been going on inside this house um, the whole time. And they have to figure it out. But it really does remind me of that really old pre-code film that James Whale did. Um, it's got a very similar... It's, it is like a gothic uh, sci-fi film in a that's lot a, of ways. That's an excellent yeah. comparison. Yeah, I, totally. and I didn't even think of that. But I, I love the old Dark House. And that you're right. Yeah. That's spot on. Yeah. That's, that's what it is, essentially. Yeah. Waylon, had you ever seen The Black Hole before this? No, I'd seen the tape at, at my local video store as a kid. I always thought it looked cool, and yet somehow I never was interested enough to rent it. So I don't, I don't know how that happened, but I was very familiar with it. So this is my first time watching the movie. What did you think of the film? I thought it, it, it looked, before I go into this, I do want to say, I thought it looked amazing. Just a, and, and like you guys said, an amazing cast, too. That being said, it, I, don't, I don't think it quite worked. I, it, it feels like it keeps trying to work, but it's odd. I thought all the um, performances were sort of subdued somehow. I mean, this is an astounding cast, and none of them are really have a, any kind of a performance that, that's taking flight. And then the script, it seemed to hit this odd place where it wanted to both be taken seriously as a you know, dramatic space movie, but didn't want to push too many boundaries um, because, you know, Disney... 
So in the end, it, it for me, is a little milk with toast. Although I did like the ending, by the way. I like to say, but the, the part that really got me is when they go into the black hole and the whole thing gets very Stanley Kubrick 2001 A Space Odyssey. I was like, this is fucking great. Uh, I wish the whole movie had been like this. I wish they just committed to the weird early on. I did really like Maximilian Schnell, though. I thought he was fantastic. I was a little emotionally uninvolved with the film until he showed up. And then suddenly the film had this energy to it. Like, ah, I've been waiting for this. That's my uh, (laughs) mixed review of The Black Hole. I think I have a very different perspective on this film. So this film... I saw in the theater when I was four years old. This was one of the very first films I've ever seen in a movie theater. This is the first film I ever became completely obsessed with. So I am so sorry. I had, <laughs> I had the little golden book for the black Aww. hole. I had a pop-up <laughs> book. I used to listen to the score, the John Barry score on a uh, orange and white Fisher-Price record player uh, ad nauseum while I would look at the pop-up book. Um, (laughs) Interestingly, my dad, he started his video store with, I believe, like 10 different movies. And these were all beta, by the way. VHS did not come out until 83, 84, somewhere in there. He started us and basically had a promise to all of his, like, new members. He's like, become a member of this video store club And whatever movie you want me to get, I will get. But it's interesting, this movie was one of those ten movies, if memory serves correctly. And I watched this over and over and over again, because that's what you do when you're a kid. You watch things just over and over again, they become comfortable and whatnot. And I was just totally obsessed with this movie for some reason. I had not seen Star Wars yet. And probably if I had seen Star Wars before I'd seen this, I probably would have a very different relationship and opinion with this film but because i saw this first this is the movie that like was like wow it was like there was robots there was laser beams it is not like by any stretch of the imagination their finest performances all of the actors are amazing actors and they're inhabiting a gothic sci-fi film and it just it just knocked my socks off i had a maximilian toy that was like this big And its arms came off and all this stuff. And like, it was, I I don't know. I was totally obsessed with this movie. So for some reason, I will always have like a place in my heart for this film. I can watch it and go, this is so flawed on so many levels. And yet I still love it. It's just pure nostalgia for me. Well, and one thing you can't take away from it is even though it borrows from so much, like you were saying, Old Dark House, 20,000 Leagues, all of that, you can't deny that it is it's weird and it is entirely unique in its own way that oh yeah i was thinking it's interesting you know in this day and age with superhero movies and ip and everything i really like the fact that no matter what it is it is an original science fiction script that's really exciting i remember thinking while i was watching it how excited i was when like the movie edge of tomorrow which i love when it came out it was an entirely original sci-fi script and i was blown away by that movie because it's a great movie but i was also like this is this is just an original screenplay of a sci-fi property we don't get that anymore like it's very rare i mean nowadays it's a resurgence of it nowadays but just taking the big swings is always admirable and like you said the nostalgia factor just two nights ago this came up at dinner with my wife's family and my brother-in-law was talking about the black hole and he hadn't seen it in years, and he remembered all of this granular detail about it. I'm like, how do you, 
remember all of this? And he goes, I don't know. He goes, I saw it. And he goes, <laughs> I, I liked it more than Star Wars because he saw it first. And he was like, the black hole will always be my Star Wars. I'm, I'm with him. Yes. Uh, that, that's what it basically is for me. And then, of course, when I saw Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, they completely blew me away as well. But, like, just seeing this and seeing this in the theater, like, seeing that early, like, uh, computer animation when they go into the black hole and that music, regardless of what you think of the film, the music is fantastic. The score is great. The opening title score is so, I was humming it for, like, a week. After it's so good, it's it goes with the black hole. It's like, da, na, 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 na. I mean, it feels yeah. like you're swirling downwards. It's such a cool score. This movie was in development for a long time at Disney, actually. Um, it was originally supposed to be like a space disaster movie, like uh, an Irwin Allen film, like Poseidon Adventure in Space, basically. And that's what it started out was I think it was called like Space Pro One. It was basically like a ship is damaged by a supernova and then it, the supernova turns into a black hole and then they're, they've got to basically escape. So that was kind of the disaster film. Over time, nobody liked that and like they kept evolving it and finally it got called the black hole. It got greenlit because of Star Wars. Like of Disney course. was like, what do we have that's science fiction? That's what everybody did. That's what Paramount did. Paramount was like, what do we have that's science fiction? And they're like, we have Star Trek. You're like, oh, yeah, 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 let's do that. And, you know, Star Trek, the motion picture, was actually like a pilot for a Star Trek TV show in the 70s that never got greenlit. And they literally just dusted off that script and put it into, like, and fast-tracked it. That's kind of like what happened with The Black Hole. They fast-tracked a script because they were like, we need a Star Wars ASAP. And that's how we ended up with this film. When they shot it, they did not have an ending. And that's how, why that ending is so bizarre. Ah, it's so great. (laughs) They had no ending the entire time they were making the film. The ending in the script was literally, the probe flies into the black hole, fade to black. (laughs) And they were like, well, we got to come up with something. What happens when it goes inside the black hole? And they're like, I don't know. We'll figure it out once while we're in production. And then while they're in production, they never really figured it out in... A lot of this ending, I believe, was created in post. Yeah, that rare case of not knowing what you're going to do and figuring it out in and after production being a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> making post. Yeah, the ending is deeply polarizing, but I love it. It's uh, and it's also one of those things where I think it's better in like 4K and Blu-ray and higher quality because you get to see how creepy the faces are. In that fiery pit of the the people sort of marching along the sides of the, I don't know, kind of hellish canyon. I guess they modeled it after uh, Night on Bald Mountain? Oh, that's cool. Sure. I think they brought one of the matte painters <laughs> out of retirement that worked on Fantasia to work on really? this. Yes. The effects are interesting because they wanted to like basically employ a lot of industrial light and magic to do this, but it was going to cost too much money. They wanted to rent the Dykstra Flex, and so they built their own motion control system and all this stuff. It was all in-house. They didn't farm any of the effects out. It was all done at Disney. Every miniature, every little bit. And it has, it's kind of like the last effects film of its kind, where it's primarily mats and opticals and miniatures. You could almost watch it back-to-back with something like Forbidden Planet, 
they would almost have a lineage with each other in a way. What did you guys think of uh, the effects and like the visual like look of this film? Oh, without part, it was so good. I mean, when I watched it, my my basic feeling was that what they were doing was going for sort of like a vintage science fiction vibe. Like it felt like a science fiction film made in the fifties. The way that the plot unraveled and the way that the characters acted, everything was very serious. Um, but with the kind of special effects that at the time were super advanced, which I still think look great. I actually think the black hole looks better. If they made the black hole now, it wouldn't look as good because they would do a lot of CGI. Like that looks fantastic. And again, you know, the ending scene was so cool. I watched it twice. I, I stopped. I was like, <laughs> what, what, what just happened? And I had to go back and rewind. Oh, wow. So yeah, black hole looks astounding. Yeah. Start to finish. I love the visual. Everything visual in this movie is fantastic. To that end, uh, so the scene, the actual, there's this wonderful set piece. The huge circular rotating compartments that house the half-human, half-cyborg <laughs> zombies. Yeah. It, it, they're basically these like human-shaped compartments in these big discs, and they rotate around and zap them in the eyes and brains to like rejuvenate these human robot slaves that are running the ship. <laughs> and I was like, how cool, because it's the Star Wars era, you know, it's, it, it, it's, the, it's the beginning of play sets. I was like, how cool would that have been if they had made a, a like human robot ship slave play set for kids? I was like, oh, you know, I can see the ad. Like, I'll be right there, mom. I'm charging up my barely human monstrous space slaves. <laughs> you know, it was well, like, it would have been a great play set. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, we, we come from the era where they made RoboCop action figures, and I think RoboCop yeah. is violent, like, now, as a 40-something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had action figures for the Black Hole. I had an Ernest Borgnine figure, and oh, a nice. Robert Forrester figure, <laughs> and if I could ever find those figures, I would be quite wealthy. They are extremely rare. I'll bet. Between that and David Lynch's Dune, I had figures for that film, too. What? I would be so wealthy if I could ever come across those. I've asked my mom. I'm like, what happened to that stuff? Like, and she's like, I think I, I think I donated it, honey. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Maybe it'll man. turn up one day when I like scour their attic or something. Oh. But it's what every every Zoomer doesn't know what they missed with their with an Ernest Borgnine action figure. <laughs> That's what everyone needs in their life. It's like, mm -hmm. what is, is that Ernest Borgnine on your shelf? You know it, baby. <laughs> There was a toy line, but it wasn't successful. The film did not do well at all. It was kind of critically smashed. It was the first PG movie, right? It was, yes. It was the very first PG Disney film uh, ever produced. There was a backlash, like a parent backlash. They got all this like hate mail for putting out a PG movie, kind of ruining their brand. I find it such a fascinating artifact. When Disney was like in such a strange place... And they were like trying to catch up with Spielberg and George Lucas, you know, basically the auteurs of the 1970s and trying to make different kinds of movies because they felt irrelevant in that period. And that's how you ended up with The Black Hole and Tron. Tron is probably the one film that Disney doesn't shy away from now. Yeah. They kind of embrace that. There's like attractions and there was a sequel not too long ago. But other than Tron, most of the films that we're going to talk about this month's episode... They're just sort of like, let's sweep those <laughs> under, let's sweep those in the corner. And yeah. they, they they don't want to talk about them. They they would much rather just pretend like 
this period didn't happen. We went from the rescuers to the Little Mermaid. <laughs> and, and we made Tron somewhere in there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember being a kid and seeing um, the box art for all of these movies, uh, none of which I saw outside of Return to Oz. And I was the, de- you know, we were the demographic and I had no interest in seeing those films either, which is weird. Like there was something off-putting to me as a kid about those movies that just, I was like, I'm not interested. You know, I want, I, I would, you know, get it, rent a Donald Duck compilation or something. But because uh, in theory, it sounds like it should work. Disney doing big budget spectacle films sounds like it should be super cool, but there's something about the way that they made those films and marketed those films that didn't quite appeal to the demographic they were hoping it would appeal to. I think because they had one foot in making sure that it was completely kid friendly, as opposed to they just gone all in. Um, I think they may have even had more success, but who knows? Who knows? We're saying they're like it's like the Christian rock of uh, fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, regardless, I loved all these movies that we're going to discuss. They were movies I watched over and over again, especially this one. Because <laughs> I, was, I was four and obsessed. No, I remember a birthday I had. Basically, everything that I got was black hole themed. Like, it might as well have been a black hole themed birthday. I was this. That's how obsessed I was with this film. <laughs> When you turn 60, I'll make sure that we, we do this for you again. So you can we should, like yes. We live oh, it, yeah. I want a black hole theme. <laughs> what, what did you guys think of, like, some of the design in this uh, in this film? Oh, I mean, fantastic. I mean, I, yeah. I don't want, I, almost iconic, really. I mean, it's one of those things, when you see it, it really, like, the, the visual impression really sticks with you. Although I did think the robot's little painted on eyes were like, all I could think of was this is like a heavy metal character in a Disney film. And it was, it didn't make any (laughs) sense to me. (laughs) It's the cutesy element. Yeah. It's like the rest of the film has a pretty dark kind of edgy aesthetic. And then Vincent and old Bob have these like giant eyes. They're like there for the kids. And I saw some of the original concept art and it was very different. It was like robots with all these arms and like no kind of like human features. Yeah, they really were the only two that stood out. And they and they all lined up design-wise except for the t- and it was pretty obvious that they were going for the for the cutesy angle. You know, right down to and I'm not complaining. I will never complain about the casting of Slim Pickens ever no. in any movie. No. And he was perfect. No. Everybody I loved Bob to death. But, you know, even down to that, yeah, it was it was the only thing in the movie that kind of felt out of place. But design-wise, I, what I loved, you know, because you had Star Wars, which, you know, all of the ships in the world felt very lived in and rusted and like, and that was what was so great about it. Black Hole also felt that way. Everything felt lived in and felt sort of cobbled together, but it also, like Waylon said, felt very 50s. So it had kind of the slick 50s or 60s feel to it, but it also had the Star Wars lived in feel. So it was this cool mm-hmm. combination of the two. Very unique. Black Hole has a unique design. Doesn't match in any anything else. It's interesting. Like, some of the ship design I love. I love the Cygnus. I think the design yeah. of that ship is completely unique. Um, I love that it has this kind of, like, a rector set feel. Yeah. And when it lights up early in the film, that is just so cool. I mean, yeah. when they're just going around the Cygnus in the dark and they're shining the light and it's just sort of the music... It's got such a great tone and feel to it. And then when they just kind of pull away from it, it lights up and, you know, you get that big sort of John Barry uh, sting. That's such a great sequence in the film. And it's such an interesting design because it's such an enormous ship. 
Wow. I mean, they even bring it up as part of their, like, how did they get the taxpayers to pay for this? Yeah, like, yeah. Because, like, the ship, the, the Palomino that they land on is this, like, this is, yeah. like, small capsule-type ship. It's, like, something we could we would build today, potentially. Yeah. But, like, the Cygnus is, like, a whole other level. And you're like, wait a minute, that came out two decades before mm-hmm. this ship? There's been some budget cuts. Yeah. And you made the perfect rector set is the perfect way of that's what it feels like. And But, but that was such a wise choice because it's, it's realistic for something that big. It's almost like the International Space Station. It is this thing that, you know, it's like an Erector set. It's this, you know, for something that huge, it's not going to be this massive, solid thing. It's going to be like a, you know, a Tinker Toy looking kind of thing. What about Maximilian, not Maximilian Shell, mind you, but the Maximilian robot? What did uh, what did you guys think of the design of the robot? It's interesting. I mean, he, from a, like, as if he was a drawing, I would be like, this is really cool. The Brought to life, it was a, it, he was a little bit less threatening than I wanted him to be. Uh, I only found him really scary at the end when he merged with the actual Macmillan Schnell. That was just because it's fucking terrifying. Yeah, e- even when he kills Anthony uh, Perkins, which you know was mostly shocking just because it's a Disney film and it, that is a horror movie style death. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, wait, is he actually dead? It took me a minute. I kept waiting for him to show back up because it's a Disney film. But no. Yeah, it's a dead. bloodless kill. If they did yeah. it, like, actually what would happen, there would just be blood it's... going everywhere. Yes. Gushing, <laughs> uh, and, and he's getting, as you called it, salad spinner drilled. Yes. Uh, you know? and that's a pretty macabre kind of moment. And, you know, even I actually love that whole sequence where... I, I hate the ESP element in this film. I, I find it completely unnecessary. Well, it's, it's like so you, annoying to me. It's like you bringing up, you know, they pushed it ahead because of Star Wars. I, I can't help but think it was like, well, we got to have the Force, but they've already used the Force. Somebody's got to have ESP. Okay, she talks right. to robots with ESP. Right. Plus, I've had it just, just like a whiff of sexist, too. You know what I mean? Like the one female character. And she's like, oh, she's the uh, intuitive one. You know, she's in touch with everything. Oh, kind of like somebody else yeah. coming up in a later movie, too. Yeah, yeah yes. <laughs> Speaking of that actress, so she was not the first casting choice. There was another actress that was chosen. Her name was Jennifer O'Neill. And, but they realized, because, you know, they have to do all this wire work. They were like, your hair's too long. And <laughs> uh, they had her cut her hair. And this actress, she was like, I'll only let Vidal Sassoon do it. And the entire time she got her hair cut, she was like, bring me wine. She was getting trashed the entire time. She got so drunk that she drove home and had a horrible car wreck and then wasn't able to do the movie anyway. So, yes. So that is, you know, how it got recast. But I I thought that was a particularly fascinating story. I was like, oh my gosh, that's awful. It's like to go to chop all your hair off and then you don't even get the part anyway. So, um, <laughs> kind of dug their own hole there. But. Totally. All right. Well, I, speaking of fascinating trivia about this movie, I have to tell probably one of my favorite tidbits of trivia about this particular film. Uh, the late, great science fiction writer Harlan Ellison was brought on as a consultant on this film, The Black Hole. 
And he's gone on, he's written about this, he's brought it up in Q&As. It's a wonderful story. So essentially, Harlan Ellison, he gets to what is now Buena Vista Studios. It was Disney Studios in Burbank at the time. Uh, he gets there, he gets off the elevator, he's greeted by his, uh, an assistant. He's escorted to a fancy corner office that's overseeing the Hollywood Hills and all of Burbank. And he's like, woohoo, I have made it. This is amazing. I love Disney. He's having some meetings, he's talking to people, and everything's going great. And then he goes to lunch in the commissary. And while at lunch, he, uh, you know, a lot of folks wanted to have lunch with him because he's Harlan Ellison. He's a, he's a well-known science fiction writer. So as he's having lunch with uh, some of his new colleagues, he starts to go on about an animated pornographic film uh, with the Disney characters, like Mickey <laughs> and Goofy and, you know, Donald all fucking. And he's doing all the impressions. Everybody is just laughing their asses off about this story. And then all of a sudden, they all <laughs> quiet down. And Harlan notices this. He's like, why is everybody not going with the flow anymore? And he looks <laughs> around, and a couple of tables over is Roy Disney. And he is mad-dogging Harlan Ellison. <laughs> and, you know, they all finish lunch, and Roy Disney gets up, and on his way out, he comes up to Harlan Ellison, and he whispers in his ear, Don't fuck with the mouse. And he walks away. Harlan Ellison goes back to his office. He gets off the elevator. The assistant is no longer there. All of his stuff is boxed up. There are security guards ready to escort him off. He was fired pink slip that day. He worked for Disney for half a day on this film. <laughs> the best story. I've, one of the best stories I've ever heard. It's so great. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's totally such a Harlan Ellison thing to do, too, because he gave no fucks about what he said. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's some pretty bold first day conversation, but uh, I think only, uh, only Harlan Ellison would go there. <laughs> I, I respect him for going there. That's probably one of my favorite bits of trivia. The other p piece of trivia I found uh, doing research for this film, the Cygnus gets its name from the constellation Cygnus, and Cygnus X1 is where scientists first suspected there was a black hole. So I thought that was a really interesting piece of trivia that the, the ship that they're all on uh, is named after that constellation. Uh, any, any additional thoughts about the black hole? Very glad it was a choice. Uh, I consider it a first watch um, just because it's been so long since I've seen it, probably since I was a teenager. That, uh, you know, I remembered certain things, the robots, the freak out ending, but really everything else I had forgotten. So it was like watching it with brand new eyes. Yeah, same. I'm happy I finally got to see this thing. Um, it, was assumed, it was just one of those posters I, again, I'd, I'd been familiar with for such a long time. And I knew it was a bit of a, a gap in my film knowledge. Uh, and I was excited because they're, they're all performers I liked. It was actually, it took me a minute before I realized that was Robert uh, Forrester as the, uh, as the space captain. I just recently watched Alligator, which might be one of my favorite Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Animals on the Loose movies. Yeah, and he's excellent in that as well. He's excellent in everything. Um, everything. I'm glad that Quentin Tarantino kind of gave his career like a new life. Yeah. You know, after Jackie Brown. So, because he's, he's a fantastic actor. Have you all ever seen his first film? It's a, 
It's a film with Marlon Brando and Elizabeth Taylor. It's like called Reflections in a Golden Eye. Have y'all ever seen this film? It's the first Jeez. film he ever did. What a title. Uh, yeah, it's like John Huston directed it. I mean, it's like what a what a first movie to be in. But um, anyway, it's it's worth checking out sometime. All right. Well, amazing. Well, from the gothic confines of deep space, we move on to the rural countryside for an old-fashioned ghost story with 1980s The Watcher in the Woods. All right, Waylon, could you synopsize Watcher in the Woods for our listeners out there? The Watcher in the Woods is interesting. It's the first uh, movie on this list that I don't actually recall seeing at the video store. And it is a uh, Disney's attempt to sort of do like a gothic hammer horror style film in which uh, we got an American family and they end up moving to a rotting estate in England uh, owned by Miss Aylwood, who's played by the great Betty Davis. Uh, who has a, a missing daughter who Jan, the lead character, happens to resemble. And Jan begins to see the ghost of this missing daughter appearing in, uh, in mirrors and windows. It's very spooky, too. She's, uh, she appears dressed in white, and she's got this blindfold on, and she keeps mouthing, help me. And um, it, it, as the film goes on, the mystery deepens, and, and they start to explore that maybe this woman disappeared uh, in, in a way that is uh, more involved with the town than, um, than they know. It, it, at first you think it's a murder mystery, but it starts to get a little bit more sort of uh, esoteric and initially takes kind of a, a science fiction twist, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get into later. Um, but it was Watcher in the Woods. Is, it, that, that's the short of it. It's, it's an interesting film. It's not great. I wanted to really like it more than I did, but it's got a lot of really great moments in it. Uh, and, uh, What's interesting is it's a film that apparently had a really tortured production period, and so there are multiple edits of it. Uh, I ended up actually watching all of them, uh, just because I, I wanted—I watched the theatrical edit first, and then I found uh, people had done these composite edits where you could see all the deleted scenes, and you could watch uh, all... There are three different endings to this movie, and so I watched all of those. Yeah, they're, 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 all, they're all kind of a mixed blessing. Uh, by the way, I should probably mention, too, this is based on a book. By the way, uh, same name. Follow up. I, I also watched the three endings as well. Nice. Um, I think we all Gray, did. Did yeah. you watch? Yep. Yeah. yeah, everybody watched that. Uh, it had different, two different beginnings shot as well, which I actually like the the, the the beginning that was not in the the theatrical, the one that they were like, "This is too creepy." Oh. So oh, cool, horrible. yeah, like total horror <laughs> yeah. movie style, yeah, yeah. They thought Disney thought this was going to be their Exorcist. That made um, me laugh when I read that, and they were like, "Yeah, let's let's do the Exorcist, but the Disney version." Gray, had you seen this before? And what did you what did you think of this? Yeah, I actually uh, grew up with Watcher in the Woods. Um, I yeah. had uh, I had a taped off of probably Disney Channel version of it. Uh, I had it lumped in with my like Halloween movies that I would watch every year. I've seen it many times. Um, <clears throat> growing up, it was always the theatrical version. I guess just last year was the first time me and AE and Jason Sean actually watched the, the Blu-ray that had, back when you could get it on physical media, that had the alternate endings on it. And then, of course, we all watched the one with it cut back, the fan cut, with all of the original endings sort of all super cut back into... And I vastly preferred the one with all of the endings cut back into it. It's super freak out weirdo, but it, it actually makes a lot more sense as 
all the hiccups included, it made more sense to me. So, but yeah, I grew up with the movie, so I have that nostalgia for it. And as troubled as it is, and as much as it doesn't work, I, I am still pretty fond of the movie. It's a cozy watch. It's the kind of thing you, you could imagine, like, a, be a perfect rainy autumn day viewing, you know, especially if you were you were young with your friends. It, just, it reminds me of that kind of a... A kind of a, a view. Indeed, and it was. I mean, when you were a little kid, it really is a terrifying movie. Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> oh yeah, some of the set pieces in this film, the um, the funhouse sequence where she sees Karen and all the different reflections in the mirror, uh, which is interesting. We'll talk about uh, oh, yeah. something wicked with <laughs> this way comes next, uh, which has some similarities of funhouse mirror sequences and whatnot. Yeah, there's a lot of like creepy little things, and I gotta say, depending on which ending you see. If you do actually see The Watcher, which is in two of the endings, that is a very creepy looking designed creature. And honestly, it looks like nothing I've ever seen the likes of before. Mm -hmm. Um, I really love the design of that thing. Yeah. I know it was in the very first original theatrical version. And for folks out there who, who are not aware, this was released with one ending that featured The Watcher creature. There was a backlash against it. Critics were confused by the ending. They pulled the movie, and then they they changed the ending to an ending where little Lindsay from Halloween is, you know, say is is controlled by the Watcher and is saying like this is basically what's happening happening. Uh, Holy it was shit! Like exposition sequence. Yeah, I didn't realize that was Lindsay from Halloween. Yeah. Oh wow! Really? I thought she looked oh familiar. God. I didn't put my finger on it. What? Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I was watching it going, Lindsay, <laughs> Lindsay. Uh, but yeah, Betty Davis is fantastic in this film. She's fantastic in everything. I mean, everything. let's face it, she's Betty Davis. The other scene that really is, I think, really well done is when Betty Davis is pushing her down yeah. the water with the like stick. And you think, oh my gosh, is this crazy old woman trying to kill this like little girl? Of course, uh, that's that's not indeed the case, but that's a very well done scene as well. There's a lot I like about this movie. It doesn't matter which ending you watch. I think it. I think it. It all kind of doesn't work by the end of it. Uh, but there's still a lot of great elements. I love the whole solar eclipse thing. Mm -hmm. There's too much exposition to explain yeah. what the heck is happening in this in this movie, even though. Everything leads up to the fact that this interdimensional or alien or whatever the Watcher actually is needs to get back to its world and trade places back with poor Karen, who's not aged a day. Does anyone else think that's like the saddest ending ever that Karen comes back yeah. like and hasn't aged a day? Oh, it's totally sad. I actually got a little choked up, and in a testament to Betty Davis's amazing performance skills, it was one of the new ending, or one of the original endings, where uh, Betty Davis comes out of her home and she sees Karen, and and she goes and embraces her, and it was like the way it was shot, and I went, ugh, I'm being so transparently manipulated by the by this scene, and then the way Betty Davis just looked at her and holds her, I got a little teary eyed, I'm like, damn it, Betty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, and you know, it's the ending. You're right, Brad. It's it's ineffectively done because, it, you know, it was so chopped up and the production and all that. But, but the concept is just so great that, you know, the Watcher is this interdimensional being and it's entirely not malevolent. It's basically like this, you know, he was just essentially taking an uptown bus across dimensions and like 
those dumb kids doing that ritual didn't know what they were doing, and whoops, they got on the wrong bus and switched places, and now Karen's, like, trapped and frozen in time, and he's trapped over here, and it, it was basically just, like, a mundane type of, like, typo on a dinner reservation, so now everybody's stuck in the wrong place, and they just have to, sp- <laughs> yeah. like, but on a cosmic timeline, it's this utter, unmentionable <laughs> horror, but it's just like this, whoops, it's just a whoopsie. So it's a really great concept that, but how do you successfully tell that? You know, like the ending where it's just kind of like, oh, so the watcher now has to get back to his blah, 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 blah. And it's like, oh, it's like so unsatisfying. But then Waylon, what you were saying about the Betty Davis scene, that is such a, you're right. It's, it's so much better than the scene, the original one where she like goes to the church. The the, the one with Karen yeah. coming to her at her house is so much better. So much better. Well, and it makes more sense too. Like it, it, you can tell watching the theatrical cut that these are, uh, these are pickups, you know, like, you're like, wait, what, how, why is she here? So like people just kind of suddenly show up in places, right. you know, it just doesn't make, it doesn't quite make sense. Yeah. I think of the three endings, I think the one that originally came out in the theater that was kind of had the backlash, the audience backlash and stuff, the one where you see the watcher, uh, but you don't go to the watcher's world. I think that's my favorite. Of the three endings. I, that I don't know the which, best. which of the three endings, if you had to pick, which, which, <laughs> which would you say you liked best? Well, yours, for sure. I think that is the best one. Because like when they showed The Watcher, I went, well, that's great. You know, I would like NECA to make an action figure of that thing. But then yeah, when they go to the, to the world, it's a little bit too much. You're just like, okay, this is... <laughs> it, it, you can't lay that on me this late into the film. This kind of strikes that perfect balance. Just show the creature... You know, kind of a little explanation of what just happened is just weird enough to work. Sweep us up in the emotional fallout and roll credits. I like seeing the creature's world. I just wish they could have made it work. So, I mean, I kind of I kind yeah. of agree with you guys that the only one that works is the one you're talking about. I just really want the other one to work. <laughs> Relate. It might have worked. They Those are unfinished effects, from my understanding. Yeah. So yeah. they they shot that and they they had a release date they had to hit and they're like we can't finish this creature's world, so those are like really half done yeah. effects. That's why it looks kind of so. I mean, it's not just of its time that it it looks that bad. I think right. I think they 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 just never got to actually finish that sequence, and that's why it, it looks so. I don't know Barbarella campy in a way, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but not a, but not in a great Barbarella campy way. What did you think of some of the other cast members in this? Carol Baker, who's like she's been in a ton of giallos. She's she's the mom in this. I always think of her as Baba Yaga in the film <laughs> Baba Yaga. Uh, for those who've seen that, what did you think of some of the other cast members in this film? I really liked the sister dynamic between Jan and Ellie because you have particularly how they react to the Watcher, because you've got Ellie. She's basically like an elemental. She's a little kid. So she's like picking up on subconscious signals and audio cues that Jan has no idea of. But Jan is then interpreting what Ellie is picking up on, and Ellie doesn't even care. She's like getting signals from Nirak, the dog, which is clearly the Watcher speaking through the dog to her. No one else can hear it but Ellie, but then Jan is like magically interpreting it. And Jan, of course, is seeing visual hallucinations that because she's the magical blonde teenager which is a trope in Mm -hmm. itself you know you got to be blonde you got to be a teenage girl and you have like magical and she's also seeing magical stuff in a mirror which is going to come into play later with ozma magical blonde teenagers in mirrors is a thing for disney movies at this time period (laughs) so uh, yeah 
But I and just the like, psychic thing. The psychic, yeah, psychic it's, thing. It's, yeah. it's constant through all so many 80s horror films and even these Disney films, too. Like, somebody has to have psychic powers. Yep. <laughs> I don't know why. But yeah, I just liked the, I liked the sister dynamic and how they each had their specialty. You had Lynn Holly Johnson. I thought they should have found someone maybe with a little more experience. But it was interesting to be watching that movie and, and Amy walked by and said, Isn't she a figure skater? And it turned out she is. <laughs> and yes. she was in uh, James Bond, uh, which one was it? Oh, For Your Eyes Only. She was in a film, I think it's called Ice Castles or something like that. Yeah, she was in an ice skating film I remember when I was a kid. I, well, I barely remember it, but I know my dad had it in his video store that she was in. I think that's how she got The Watcher in the Woods was uh, the Ice Castles film because it was kind of ah. when it came out. But it's funny, she was not the original choice. You know who the original choice for this role was? Diane Lane. Really? And if this, if this had Diane Lane, I think it would be an even better film because I think I she's agree. a much better actress. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, and it's a tricky role to pull off, too. Like, I actually don't think that Lynn Holly Johnson is, is a bad actress. The whole film has to be anchored on her performance, and it's a performance that requires a lot of um, conveying things that are happening internally. And that is a really hard thing to do for any actor. Yeah. And so picking someone who was a relative newcomer was probably a bit of a mistake. Also, there's no sibling rivalry between her and her younger sister, which I bothered no. me to no end. I don't know. I just found it completely unrealistic. I was like, don't they ever, like, bicker? Yeah, it is like an idealized... No, you're right. They didn't. It was completely idyllic. Yeah, just what a great sister. I'm here to help my little sister. She's never annoying me. <laughs> well, come on. Yeah, I guess the original script for this was, like, too dark for Ron Miller. And I know when they actually saw The Watcher, they were like, what the actual hell? That thing is freaky. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's awesome. scary for kids. <laughs> it has that one foot in wanting to be a classic gothic ghost story, and then the other foot in, well, we gotta keep it, gotta keep it as kid-friendly as possible. But it's interesting, though, they hired the guy that did Legend of Hell House. I was so hoping we would talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, let's let's talk about that. Um, I haven't seen Legend of Hell House in a long time, and I did not get to rewatch it for this. But, um, yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think of the directing in this film? It's I, It was weird. Like, it, there were moments where I was like, this is great. And the moments where I wanted, I, I felt like it was a little almost perfunctory. Is that the word? Yeah, you, you wanted them to push it more. In, in a lot of levels. Obviously, it's in the hands of someone who's done this before. And when I realized that it's the guy who did Hell House, it's like one of the few really solid uh, Richard Matheson book adaptations. It's like, all right, I can see why. <laughs> see why they cast this guy. And again, I kind of feel like this might have been someone who was, you know, again, slightly anchored by, by that sort of tricky balance that they were trying to pull off with this. You know, we want it to be scary, but not too scary. You know, so you see places where normally they might have chosen a, a more esoteric camera angle. But instead, they chose something that's a little more like a TV movie just to try and, and, and make it feel less less imposing. Yeah, that's a good point. It does it does sort of seesaw between there, there are definite TV movie moments and then other times it's stunning. I love the roving POV shots, that, which was very in vogue at this time. You mm. know, Black Christmas really mm-hmm. um, <laughs> kind of yeah. helped that. Jaws really did. You know, Jaws, I think, made it even more in vogue, but... It just all kind of happened at once. It's like these roving POV shots of the of the whatever the the creature, the the slasher. Um, but those are those are utilized, I think, quite well in this film. 
the eclipse element, I like the whole idea of that. And I love all the foreshadowing to the eclipse, like all the things that the Watcher is trying to tell her mm-hmm. throughout. I, I like the mystery element, and I like the music, and, you know, it's got a nice tone to the film. I just think, ultimately, because it's got this one foot in the kid's world, and then the, the other foot in, like, a classic gothic uh, ghost story, it feels a little muddled at times. But mm-hmm. um, but there's still, there's still a lot of little great moments in this film, for sure. I gotta go out and get the book, actually. It was... This, this whole, uh, watching all these movies got me, uh, preparing next week's book list because I've lost my copy of Something Wicked This Way Comes, apparently. I went, I went digging around for it. Uh, so I'm going to have to go buy that and Watcher in the Woods. and I'll get back to you all with that one. Has anybody seen the remake of this film with Angelica Houston? I have not. I st- no. I stumbled on it looking up and, and I was like, oh, there was a remake? and I, I didn't know either until, until research on this. Must be particularly bad because like even on the review aggregator sites... There's like three reviews, and I'm like, but like, I'm like, oh wow! Like even on aggregator sites, there's only three reviews of it. I'm like, that's when you know something's really bad. <laughs> so it's not even a Disney film; it's a Lifetime movie. Oh, oh my! <laughs> that tells you that's probably why it's so bad, and there's so few reviews for it. Ooh. It's a Lifetime movie. Well, and that's weird because, like, why is this property primed for like uh, the we, don't, we want to be scary, but not too scary format. That's odd. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? You kind of wish somebody would go in and do something that's a little bit more toothsome. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess there was there's kind of a little bit of a built-in audience for this, uh, especially for the people like me that remember the film. I don't know if, is it a young adult book, The Watcher, Watcher in the Woods? I mean, is maybe that's why it keeps getting adapted and stuff. Maybe it is, but you could do like a solid PG-13, you know, like, didn't have to be... A G-rated <laughs> lifetime mm. movie. <laughs> I am. Uh, I will neither confirm nor deny that I'm. I'm on Wikipedia right now. But it was apparently the book Watcher in the Woods was uh, re-released by Scholastic. So I think it's definitely got kind of ah. a young adult aim. And now it's also a choose-your-own-adventure depending on which ending you get. So how cool is that? Before Black Mirror got to right. it. <laughs> Well, any other thoughts about uh, Watcher in the Woods? It did make me nostalgic for my uh, L.A. days because there's a mural there that always made me laugh, uh, showing Betty Davis on The Tonight Show being asked, uh, what is the best way an aspiring actress could get into Hollywood? She goes, take Fountain, which is, of course, a street in Los Angeles. (laughs) Take Fountain. That's right. All right. Well, let's continue digging through Disney's bones in the closet with the 1983 adaptation of Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes. All right, Gray, can you synopsize Something Wicked This Way Comes for our listeners? Something Wicked This Way Comes uh, takes place in a small town called uh, Greentown, Illinois in uh, post-war days. Primarily concerns three characters, Will Holloway, his dad Charles, and uh, Will's best friend Jim Nightshade. And these are three characters with uh, fairly severe daddy issues, and that's <laughs> that's a big part of the story. Uh, Will and his father have a, you know, while relatively loving relationship, very distant relationship. Charles has deep-seated issues of uh, regret and cowardice that go way back and are key to this central to the storyline. Charles is also an older man and feels he's too old to be a father and really connect with his son. That's his 
fatal flaw. Jim, it's heavily intimated that his dad ran out on the family when he was young, so he lacks a father figure. And so it's an idyllic town, but a lot of personal problems going on, mainly around father issues. And in the midst of all this, one night the circus rolls, I'm sorry, the carnival rolls into town. Uh, Dark's Pandemonium Carnival, always a good sign when your carnival is named Dark's Pandemonium Carnival. Uh, It rolls into town one night and magically, basically instantly sets itself up. Will and Jim follow the train and the minute the train stops, the carnival's already set up. They're intrigued. Uh, Will's apprehensive because he's, you know, sort of the reserved one. Jim's the rebellious one. So, you know, days go on. They end up going to the carnival and things start to be a little bit shady. The three main denizens of the carnival, Mr. Dark, played by the wonderful Jonathan Price, Dust Witch, who is played by Pam Greer, Mr. Cougar, I forget the actor's name who played him, um, he's the proprietor of the Mirror Maze and the Carousel. These are our three sort of main, main guys in the, in the carnival. They start seducing the townspeople by offering them their deepest desires and playing on their biggest fears. We find out these are Faustian bargains. Uh, people get their deepest desires, but end up essentially selling their souls to the carnival, uh, or, and they become part of the carnival. As this all happens, uh, Charles Holloway, Will's dad, starts to put two and two together. He's the town librarian, so he does research on this and discovers that this carnival has been rolling into town periodically throughout the decades. And these people have been known as the Autumn People. And they're essentially, uh, you know, you could call them psychic vampires, something like that. They come in and feed off of people's desires and fears. And uh, in fact, Charles's father, who was a minister, had, had battled them in the past and lost the Mr. Dark in the past. This all culminates with a showdown between Mr. Dark and Charles in the library where Mr. Dark offers to give Charles his youth back and Charles has a bad heart. He plays on that. Charles, coward and weakling though he is, resists it to his credit. Mr. Dark's uh, emphasis starts to move toward Jim Nightshade because he knows Jim doesn't have a dad and Jim could be a very powerful ally and he wants Jim to join the circus and be his partner, essentially. He wants to make it Dark and Nightshade's Pandemonium Carnival. His emphasis really starts to go to Jim Nightshade at that point, and Will is kind of just an obstacle. He's got to get Will out of the way to suck suck his friend's soul away. So it ends up in a showdown in the Mirror Maze, where Dark is really playing on Charles Holloway's cowardice in the past, where he didn't save Will's life when he was drowning because he didn't know how to swim, and some other man saved his son's life. So it all comes to a head. You know, a pretty touching moment where Will says, you know, Dad, I love you anyway. So Jason Robards, who plays Charles Holloway, smashes his way out of the mirror maze, kind of takes his own power back. And then the tornado comes and whisks the, the carnival away. A bolt of lightning zaps Mr. Dark onto the carousel, which goes around backwards or forwards and ages him into decrepitude, effectively killing him. We don't know if he's really dead because he gets sucked back in with the storm, and which takes the carnival away with it. I left out that plot point where historically the carnival comes and goes with the storm and they need to know when the storm is coming so that they can get away before it comes. The, the main point of the whole story is is be careful what you wish for and dealing with your past regrets and issues. An amazing synopsis, Gray. That was fantastic. Waylon, had you ever seen this film? Uh, this has kind of gotten lost to time, this movie, so I'm not sure if everyone has seen this or not. This I have seen because I 
both love Jonathan Price and Ray Bradbury, uh, so definitely familiar with something Wicked This Way Comes. Great. It's like one of my favorite Disney movies. And actually one of the best uh, Bradbury adaptations. I fully agree. Yeah. 100%. I love about everything about this story. In fact, I honestly think this story should be adapted as often as Great (laughs) Expectation. Yeah. Yes. It is just that level of such a great story. It's interesting to watch it now because I watched it from more of the kid's perspective when I was a kid. But to watch it now, I'm watching it from like Jason Robard's perspective. You know, I have a very young son who I had much later in life as this character did. It was so relatable, like what you go through in like midlife. Yeah, I got a completely different perspective on this film uh, as as an adult than I than I did seeing it as a kid. Yeah, and Brad, I just realized, you know, not to yeah, obviously not to hit it too far home, but by the time your son is Will's age, I guess you'll be Jason Robards because he's fifty four, right? In in the in yeah. the book and in the movie, so, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's about yeah. spot on. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna have to watch him around like the lake and stuff, like extra. Careful. Make sure I can. So I don't have any like long lasting regrets. You didn't have a weird minister father who wouldn't let you learn how to swim. Just read the books, boy. (laughs) (laughs) This film is so fantastic in so many ways, though. The particularly the performances. Jonathan Price, Chef's Kiss all the way. That library scene is just incredible. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh my God. Every word of dialogue and kudos to Bradbury for this. Everything he says about the age as he's pulling out the pages. Mm-hmm. You're 35. You're not out of breath going <laughs> up the stairs. It's just like, uh-huh. oh my God. It like hits home to like an older person now. You're like, wow. This is, yeah. this is deep. This is deep. On, on so many levels, this film is deep. Yeah, and it was the it was the first thing, and probably for all of us, it was the first thing I saw Jonathan Price in because I saw this movie when I was like eight, I think. And so Jonathan Price, this everything is he does is amazing, but he'll always be Mister Dark in my mind. It's the first thing I think of when I think of Jonathan Price. <laughs> in Brazil, probably. In Brazil, too, well, so, an interesting yeah. story. Apparently, you know, because Gilliam had really wanted to uh, cast him in Brazil, and the producer Arnon Milchan had. It was like, you can't cast this guy. He's not a commercial anything. You know what I mean? He's too old, whatever. Um, but Gilliam said, well, can we just audition the guy? And he said, yeah, all right, I guess if we have to. But he's not getting the part. And Price walked in and Milchan's daughter saw him and said, oh, Mr. Dark, Mr. Dark from Something Wicked This Way Comes. And I guess that convinced Milchan. Oh. He said, you know, you're good with my daughter. No. You're good with me. You're in the picture, kid. Nice. Yeah. Think Something uh- Wicked This Way Comes from Brazil. Yeah, everything about that library scene, it's such a perfect scene. And I was shocked uh, to see this in a Disney film when he squeezes Robard's hand. And his hand it goes to an extreme yeah. close-up and it shows the hand cracking. And you're like, oh, yeah. that's rough. I mean, this had some gory stuff in mm-hmm. it. Uh, that scene and also uh, when uh, Will sees uh, his head get chopped off in the guillotine. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, uh, that was amazing as well. He owns every sequence he's in, but also Robards is fantastic Mm -hmm. in this. I mean, Robards is usually fantastic, but he is so great in this, as is Pam Greer, Mm -hmm. which I think that is such a brilliant piece of casting. Yeah. 
I don't think she'd ever done anything remotely like this, sort of a fantastic kind of film. And to cast her as a dust witch was, I think, a stroke of genius. She scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. Yeah. Especially in that library scene when she's, like, approaching Robards and stuff. Like, that scene, like, it just made the hairs on my on my arm stand up. It was so creepy as a kid. Between her incredible beauty and just her presence and stuff, I think she's she was a fabulous piece of casting. Oh, my God, yes. Well, and she almost, she was always the hero. And, and there is something about Pam Greer... <clears throat> that feels really trustworthy, you know, like if there was a zombie apocalypse, I would definitely want to find Pam Greer to help me. And so having her be like death, basically that scene where she comes yeah. in and she starts to slow down Holloway's heart, which by the way, as a 40 something totally sent chills down my spine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was extra terrifying because you like that. That's what makes a good villain. She seems likable in a, in many ways. You know what I mean? There's something about Pam Greer that's just comforting. And so having her do yeah. this horrible thing and still remain a sort of an oddly comforting presence is extra, this extra layer of, of scary for me. Yeah, it's like a creepy maternal quality yeah, to her performance. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And it's, yeah, it's really unnerving. But yeah, it's, it's, I, I think it's brilliant. Because the Faustian bargain is, you know, it's an age-old storyline. Classic. I liked it in Something Wicked. These, you know, dark secret desires that the autumn people are exploiting are, they're entirely mundane. Like, it's a really wonderfully human thing that they're offering. They could just, they could trap anybody. Like, it's not like, oh, I know your secrets. You secretly are like, want to be a Ted Bundy. Or I know you used to like have sex with your grandma's house shoes. Or it's not like that. It's like, you used to be a beauty queen and now you're old and ugly. You just want to be pretty again. You just want to be rich. It's like, okay, yeah, it's, it's just mundane human things. It's also really telling that like the two people, if you watch the movie particularly, the two people that get really giddy, like sweaty and like giggling excited is the greedy guy and the horny guy. The <laughs> like, horny, that yeah. scene so it's like, was so unsettling. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's And I love what they turn into too. Yes. Like, you know, he, he turns into a bearded lady. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The yeah. really horny guy. He's after his, the ladies. Also, it's like, yeah, it's always got this little twist. He's the barber. Yeah. One. So he turns yeah. into the scented yeah. bearded lady. Yeah. Yeah. And, little, and uh, a bit of a uh, freaks in there. Yeah. Cause you contrast, you contrast this, them with Ed, the bar owner, you know, who's like the former football star mm. and his is just so reasonable. It's like he, because his life is pretty good. He owns the bar. Everybody likes him. He's super popular. He's a nice guy. He's still super physically fit. He's just missing his arm and his leg. And it's like, well, of course he wants his arm and his leg back. That's entirely reasonable. He's not like being greedy. So, yeah. Which I, I had to look up. I was like, how did they do that effect? It's so well done. He actually is missing yeah. his arm and his leg. Yeah. I, I can't say enough good things about this film. I'm like, I, I can't believe that Disney buries this. It is such a great film. It speaks to young and old, but it does have some genuinely frightening scenes. I think particularly the scenes with the, the tarantulas mm-hmm. coming into the bedroom, that is absolutely a nail-biting, terrifying scene. What did, what did you guys think of that? Yeah, well, you know what's interesting to me about I mean, I liked that scene, um, and it, I found out it was a pickup shot later. It was actually, they felt the film needed a little extra hoomph. They're older. Yeah, yeah yes. you can tell by that. They look, you know, because kids age so much in like six months. It's the shots where they wake up and their hair's different and they just look older. And I guess Disney had seen it 
And they were like, wait a minute, this scene, it needs something. And they, they added they added those few little shots and stuff. But yeah, they stick out. For well, sure. and I'm in favor of it, too. Because, I mean, like, uh, you know, one of the reasons I think Bradbury is really hard to to adapt is that is a lot of the stuff that goes on in his, his books is very much just kind of the vibe he establishes through his prose. Like Fahrenheit 451, when I finally sat down to read it, it was a much briefer book than I expected. Uh, you know, it's so famous. I expected something a lot bigger in scope. I think the... The tarantula scene works great, obviously, like you're saying, aside from them being older. But you know what? You don't notice that the first time you watch it. Yeah. Interestingly, in the, I have two two interesting things about the spider sequence is, one, in the book, the dust witch doesn't travel around as a fog. She travels around in a giant black balloon, almost yes. like a hot air balloon. <laughs> and she attacks Will Holloway's. That scene, she attacks Will Holloway's house in the balloon, and he fends her off with, with his bow and arrow set. I'm assuming in the movie they probably didn't have budget or reason or something like that. So they ended up doing the spider attack, which is fine. It's way scarier. But I've always been thrown off by the fact that they attack, because in the book it's just Will that they attack. Because... Mr. Dark, by that point, is actively trying to seduce Jim to be part of the circus. I mean, the carnival. It makes no sense that Jim is part of that spider attack. Because Dark is trying to seduce him to become part of the carnival. Why would he uh, then be point. scaring Jim off at the same time? Like, I feel like that's my only gripe in the movie, is it should the spider should have just been going after Will. But it's fine. It's a good point. Good memory, too. I haven't read the book in quite a while, and I was, I was trying to find my copy... But, uh, you know, the problem is that I work at a bookstore, so I have a lot of books around here. <laughs> I I'm just sure. Locate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because we get galleys. We get all the uh, uh, uncorrected proofs. And so, you know, you're constantly like, ooh, I haven't read that yet. Well, how, how would you say, as an adaptation of the book, uh, does this compare to the book? Oddly, it, it's, except for a few things here and there, it's extremely faithful. And in some ways, I actually like it a little bit better. You know, Bradbury... One of his biggest strengths is brevity and is getting to the point about things. He doesn't, but Something Wicked is one of his few books. It can at times, particularly Charles Holloway's internal monologues, there are times when I'm like, okay, okay, we get it. You're a sad sack. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> I had that. I actually prefer Bradbury uh, as a short story writer more than a novelist a lot mm-hmm. of times because that was my reaction to reading Something Wicked This Way comes. I said, ah, you keep talking about the dandelions. I get it. <laughs> right. Well, I know this had a long journey to screen. It was originally a short story called The Black Ferris. And then Bradbury first turned this into a movie treatment. And he wanted, I think, Gene Kelly, of all people, like who was a good friend of his, to direct it in the 50s. Ah. That's right, like 58 or something. Yeah. Yeah, he wanted this all the way back into the 50s. And then he never could get it off the ground. He could never get a studio to back it. And so he wrote it as a book. And it still floundered and stuff. I think Paramount was going to do it in the 70s. And then finally, it took the Ron Miller age. Like, hey, we need to try some new things. You know, what can we dust off? And and this got dusted off, which is, uh, I think, fantastic. And I think back in the 50s and 60s, Bradbury himself was was wanting, uh, I think, Christopher Lee for Mr. Dark, which, of course, would have been amazing. <laughs> that would have been epic. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It would have, but man, I, I, I can't imagine anybody but Price now. He's Same here. so he's yeah. so incredible in this. And uh, it's it's so menacing. And is he actually that tall in real life? He seems taller 
in this movie than any other thing I've ever seen him in. I, I mean, he seems like he's six foot three in this thing. I wouldn't be surprised if he had lifts on, yeah, because he he yeah. seems pr- ridiculously tall in this movie. Yeah. Oh, that scene where he's walking around looking for the two boys, and he just they set up that parade. It's so good. It's such a great suspenseful moment they're hiding in the grates uh-huh. and stuff and like the tattoos on where he basically oh, yeah so where he basically cool. becomes the illustrated man and has the yeah. tattoos on his palms yeah. yeah oh oh so good he's so great too at not being like menacing in an outward he doesn't immediately come up like he's not he's not starting at 11 you know he always he's charming and he's got kind of there's a there's a kind of a, a inherent sweetness to jonathan price so when he starts to kind of, and, and what he'll do is he'll start off nice and then he, he slowly, you know, starts turning on those, those menacing mechanisms. So by the time the scene's ended, you're like, oh my God. But every time, you know, it's, it's got this slow burn to it that I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this is in the book or not, but the lightning rod salesman. So I, I always assume that they go from town to town and I'm assuming this lightning rod salesman like gets there before they do and like hands out lightning rods. Am I off in my assumption of that? Because it seems like that is always their undoing is the lightning. The storm is what takes them away every time, but I can't remember if the light if Tom Fury is is an actual elemental, like if he's a character that shows up every time they do from the book, I don't remember. I only remember him in just this one iteration. So, don't remember. He's definitely there undoing this time. Um, I take it from the movie alone, the way I read their undoing was that, you know, they're torturing Tom Fury because he knows when the storm's coming. Because he has, like, this mm-hmm. supernatural ability to know when the storm is coming. So they know when the storm's coming, but I take it, it their greed is their undoing. Because Dark wants Jim Nightshade so bad, sticks around too long. And, ends, and the storm ends up taking them out. That's the way I, I tend to look at it, that, that they should have already packed up and left. And the effects in that final sequence on the carousel where they're, he's turning like old and yeah. that is really impressive. I think, did Stan Winston, I think I saw his name in the credits. I think he did that effect. Gray, you would know. Yeah, I think so. I think it was partially him, yeah. It's really impressive. Even today, that's a, like a really impressive, like all the different stages of like that animatronic mm-hmm. old man. And then like the man, the, the guy that comes out from Freaks, by the way, I think that actor is in Todd Browning's Freaks. He is. I looked it up. Carries, carries his bones off. I just, I thought that was mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. So much, so much to like about this film. I also did not realize this. There were two scores written for this film. And I just you can listen to the other score on YouTube if you want. It's by someone named George Delarue, and he did the original score. And Disney deemed it far too scary and creepy. <laughs> and it, it is very, it is a very scary score, honestly. So they brought in, uh, I believe, James Horner to do mm-hmm. the score in place of him. I still like the James Horner uh, score, but uh, if for folks out there, uh, I think. Check out the George Delarue score. It's pretty great. The legacy of this story is kind of vast. It seems so incredibly influential on horror writers, the big ones today, like Neil Gaiman Mm -hmm. and Clive Barker Mm -hmm. and uh, Stephen King, who I know has cited this. This is needful needful things. things. It is. Yeah, Yeah, that's, that's what comes to mind. I was like, 
I was like, this is basically like he kind of ripped this off in a way when he wrote Needful Things. And there's even characters. I actually made a note. M O O N. That spells Tom Fury. Because I mean, it, it, like, you know, like Tom oh, wow. Collin from The Stand. Is I mean, they're very similar characters. There's a lot of uh, uh, Bradbury in in Stephen King's DNA, definitely. Or vice versa. Oh yeah, big time. But, I think in probably a lot of writers' DNAs. He's yeah. so influential. Yeah, actually, Ray Bradbury ran over my foot at Comic Con one year. <laughs> oh, and he was being pushed. He was being pushed in a wheelchair, and he like it went right over my foot. So, but you know, I was God like, bless. Yeah, him. that's right. Well, and then there's the of course yeah. I buried Ray Bradbury, and there's that. Uh... Oh my gosh, that's Whoa. right. When you were a grave digger for uh, a hot minute. Yeah. You wow. Wait a yeah. minute. You buried Ray Bradbury. Yeah, it was, it was pretty wild. His bike. My... One of my childhood heroes, yeah. So when I worked there, uh, you know, his wife already had a, he was already buried there, and he had a a space right beside hers um, with the gravestone already there just waiting. And, you know, he was already quite old, so every day I was like, one of these days, and uh, driving to work one day, I heard it on the news, and I was like, well, then I got to work, and they were like, well, Ray Bradbury is day after tomorrow and i was like oh wow and it was a uh section in the cemetery where you could not get heavy machinery into so carlos my partner and i had to hand dig the grave and it was the oh my one of the biggest honors of my life that we hand dug his grave and 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 laid him to rest yeah um i'll there is a photograph floating around out there i will maybe i'll post it on the facebook group of me in the grave like digging it and carlos outside of it i didn't take it someone clandestinely took it of us while we were digging the grave and uh, posted it online. Wow. Jesus. What an honor. Yeah. What a great honor. That's amazing. It was. Yeah. I was also excited this summer. I got to see The Cure uh, over the summer, and they have a song that is related to something wicked this way come. It's a song called I Can Never Say Goodbye. It's not released yet, it's, really? but it's coming on their new album. Oh, it was amazing. They had, as a projection, they had like uh, the carousel going in the background and stuff. Oh my and god! Played the oh, song cool. and and it was like and the chorus is yeah and something wicked this way comes and I was just like oh my god this song is so great, um, but uh, yeah uh, I think it's about I think his brother died Robert Smith's brother died and he wrote that song uh, about that. Oh, uh, wow. But anyway, for Cure fans out there, uh, something and and Ray Bradbury fans, something to look forward to. All right, excellent. Well, this had such a long time to make it to the screen. Uh, I totally worth the wait. This is this is still a treat to this day. I think it still holds up fantastically. Uh, any parting thoughts about something wicked this way comes? It's sort of a throwaway thought, but it's true. Uh, the little boy version of Mister Cougar. Has to be in the top five creepiest movie kids. Mm, yeah. You're just saying that because he's a ginger. That's just ginger prejudice, damn it. <laughs> Goddamn South Park. Man, I can't, I can't live that down as a ginger. Jesus Christ. Everybody's like, they don't have souls. They don't have souls, gingers. I'm like, fuck off. <laughs> but Brett, we like that you don't have a soul. That's why we're all here. That's true. Yeah. That's true. I I just do whatever the fuck I want. Yeah. Awesome. Excellent. All right. Well, that was an amazing film. A wonderful rewatch. All right. Well, from the mystical carnival barkers to a trip back down the yellow brick road, let's join Dorothy Gale on her return to Oz. 
Waylon, could you synopsize possibly one of the creepiest kids' films ever made for our listeners out there? Oh, I will. I will do my best. Uh, so we've got Return to Oz is sort of a sequel to the original uh, Wizard of Oz. It's like a it's a sequel and sort of a uh, a retooling, and that it's it's a lot more faithful to the uh, to the source material. So Dorothy has has not really recovered from her her trip to Oz, and her family thinks that she's nuts. And uh, in, in got, what's got to be one of the most screwy setups to any children's film ever, they take her to a sanitarium where they're going to like give her shock therapy treatment to try and cure her of these delusions. And um, they they escape, and there's a storm. And uh, of course, because it's a Wizard of Oz film, the storm ends up sweeping her away back to the land of Oz. But it becomes an out of the uh, you know frying pan into the fire situation where she, when she lands back in Oz, Oz has been destroyed. The yellow brick road is broken, and she finds that everybody, including her friends, the, the cowardly lion and the tin men, they've all been turned into stone. She ends up making uh, a bunch of new friends on a quest to try and uh, and restore Oz. And uh, it's it's really a very cool movie. I liked it much more wa- watching it as a grown-up than I did as a kid. Uh, I-, I think a lot of the designs should be iconic, actually. Uh, she- one of the people she makes friends with is a robot soldier named TikTok, who is cool. Like, I don't know why they don't make TikTok Christmas ornaments right now. I mean, it would be amazing. <laughs> uh, there's a, uh, there's a, they have their own version of the Scarecrow, who is both terrifying and, and accurate. Uh, there's a lot of moments in this film that look to me exactly like illustrated pages from one of the old Frank Baum books brought to life, and it, it's jaw-dropping. But intermixed with that are some truly terrifying sequences in this film that would that would put many horror movies to shame. And this is, of course, one of the reasons why the film was was a huge box office failure. It it, it completely it was it was too much of a kids' film for grown-ups and too scary for children. So it hit right in that middle ground, destined to become a cult classic. Guys, what are your thoughts? Did you all see this when it first opened? Yeah, I saw it once once at the theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I think, but oddly, I didn't see it again until I was probably a teenager or maybe, a, I think, in my early 20s. Like, I saw it in the theater and then on video in my 20s, I think. Yeah, I saw it on video when my dad had it in his store. And then I don't think I, yeah, I think I'm the same. I don't think I watched it again until... Yeah, my 20s or something. I don't know. I became obsessed. I wrote a horror film version of The Wizard of Oz. And in the process, I like dove back into the books, the original books, and I watched this again. And so, yeah, I, it was probably around that period. Yeah, I, it is truly uh, terrifying in a lot of it. It's kind of a, it's got an interesting mixture, this film does. Gray, what was your, I mean, what was, what were some of your thoughts about this? Well, it was, um, interestingly, it was a mishmash, but it worked. Like, it worked in a way that it really shouldn't have. Yeah. My, my first impression, having rewatched it, because I hadn't seen it since my early 20s, was, well, why didn't they just adapt one of the many Oz books, you know, just do a straight adaptation? Because it seemed like a mishmash of a bunch of them. You know, Ozma's in it, but she feels kind of weird and out of place until the very end when it's just sort of explained away. And then I found out it was almost, seems like it was kind of like similar to Roger, the Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie thing, where they, it was almost made as like 
to retain the film rights to the like they were going to lose mm-hmm. the film rights if they didn't make an Oz movie. Oh, interesting. They they tried to make one called The Rainbow Road to Oz at one point and that fell through and they were going to lose the rights so they just like pushed this through, but it ended up being this incredibly creative uh, sort of hodgepodge of a bunch of the different Oz books. Like Waylon said, yeah, I think it hit that too scary for kids, too kiddie for adults. So just right perfectly in the middle. I feel like if it came out today on like Netflix or something, it would do way better. I think it was oh, yeah. too much too early. It's certainly a cult film now. Oh yeah, people love it now. Yeah, it's certainly found its audience after after all these decades. And it's not one that Disney shies away from. It's everywhere. Yeah, I think it's actually their creepiest film, but it is on Disney Plus, strangely <laughs> enough. And there's really a long history with The Wizard of Oz with Disney, and that might be why. Walt wanted to do The Wizard of Oz as an animated film right after Snow White. But because Snow White was so successful, MGM... Like, snatched the rights up to Wizard of Oz before he could. Of course, then that became the musical. But Wizard, the original Wizard of Oz was not successful as well. That was That's also a cult film. Really? Right? I didn't know that. It was not successful until about the 50s. It became more successful as it played again and again. And when it finally like started to play on television every year, then it became this beloved classic film. But when it came out, it was not. It was not a success, but it just lived on. And to be frank with you, the only the only thing this movie has in common with that 39 version is the ruby red slippers. Yeah. Other than that, which I guess they had to pay MGM like a freaking butt ton of money. To yeah, have, I read because that. it's this, it's it's the silver shoes in the book. It was such an iconic thing, the ruby red slippers. They had to somehow I'll incorporate that into into the film. That makes sense. I mean, yeah. That... Agreed, actually. Yeah. The making of it is, I think, as interesting as the film itself. This is the only film Walter Murch ever directed. For those of you who do not know who Walter Murch is, Walter Murch is one of the top editors and sound designers working in Hollywood. He edited The Godfather 2. He edited Apocalypse Now. He won an Academy Award for doing the sound design for Apocalypse Now. He wrote the definitive book on video editing. It's a book called In the Blink of an Eye. To any video editor out there, I always say, please read that book. It it gets into the philosophy of editing, like why you make a cut, when you make a cut, and all that. So Walter Murch is this amazing technician on so many levels. Regardless, this is the only film he ever made because he had such a terrible time making this film. He was actually fired like just a few weeks into the production. The film went over schedule and over budget. So Disney had the producer fire him. Next day, that producer got a phone call from Steven Spielberg. Then he got a phone call from George Lucas. And then he got a phone call from Francis Ford Coppola. And they all flew out to meet him for lunch to get Walter Murch's job back. Can you imagine <laughs> being at that lunch across from these three heavyweights? Because Murch was part of Zotrope. And part of Zotrope was Lucas's first film, THX 1138. Lucas edited, but like Murch would come in and do all the sound design at night. They were like tag teaming this film together. Lucas and Murch are like thick as thieves. And Coppola is, of course, thick as thieves with Murch as well because he... He's edited, he basically edited quite a few of his films up at that point, particularly the massive uh, editing job that was Apocalypse Now. 
Uh, I think there was still, I think it may still be in the record book of like most footage ever shot for a f- single film or something like that. Wow. But, Beyond Heaven's Gate, that's <laughs> something else. Oh, that thing's ridiculous. Don't even get me on Heaven's Gate. But uh, <laughs> I love Heaven's Gate. Don't get me wrong, but it's, that's, that's a whole, that would be, a, we could just do an episode on Heaven's Gate by itself uh, and the making of it. But yeah, he, he had a really tough time. Like even George Lucas stepped in and said, I will fund this film if it goes over budget. And he came in, I think he actually directed for like a week on it as well. Really? Wow. Like, yes, George Lucas, was, <clears throat> I mean, he put everything in to make sure that Walt, Walter Murch got his job back. But this was still, this was at the end of the Ron Miller era. So th- this was such a kind of failure because Eisner and Katzenberg had taken over in 84. They came in, saw the rushes for the film and were like, what the holy hell is this? This is not what we want to do with Disney. <laughs> and they barely marketed it. They barely released it and stuff. It just, it got completely a truncated release. Poor Walter Murch had such a bad time. He's never directed another film. So yeah, just tons of problems throughout. Freddie Francis, for those of you who don't know who Freddie Francis is, he did a lot of Hammer films. He shot the wonderful ghost film, The Innocents. Uh, he also shot David Lynch's Dune oh, and David cool. Lynch's The Elephant Man. Uh, he's an amazing cinematographer. He was the first cinematographer on this as well. And he left early on in the production also. So it had a heap, heap of problems. I can't imagine doing this as a first film, even as experienced as Walter Murch is. This movie is massive. Yeah. Yeah. It has animatronics, matte paintings, stop motion. Yeah, miniatures. It's got everything. It does. It has like every kind of effect that you could imagine at that time. It's also the first film of Feruza Balk. Mm-hmm. I was about to say, we haven't talked about that yet. Yeah. She's best known for The Craft, uh, which I had quite the crush on her in that film. Yeah, she's like nine years old, I think, when she played Dorothy Gale in this film. Yeah. Something. Uh, I, th- I think it's one of the, the problems with the movie, actually. I feel like, and, it, and it's not, again, it's not her fault. It's just that child actors aren't great at, at carrying movies unless they're, you know, they're torturing people trying to break into their house like in Home Alone. <laughs> but, but you know, <laughs> the, the but yeah, I think that was one of the one of the issues with the with the way with that film was it was hard. There's no one to relate to unless you're nine, and if you're nine, you're so terrified you don't you can't relate to anything. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> I think she did as well as she could for her yeah, age, and absolutely. I always I always watch child performances with kind of a a kind of a bit of forgiveness. There occasionally I'm very surprised when I see a really good child performance. I think like the last time I was really surprised was like Haley Joel Osman in uh, Sixth Sense. Yeah, but then it's always horrible because you know you're like, "Why well, the kid's going places?" And then you think that kid's life is going to be ruined. Like it's exactly. really I'm very uncomfortable. With it. I almost feel like if there's one good that could come from from computers, maybe we could I don't know. CGI children, not after <laughs> children stars. There's a long philosophical conversation there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What did you guys think of that sequence where she goes into the queen with like a hundred heads and stuff and you're seeing all of the heads behind the glass cases and stuff? What's oh. your reaction to that now as an adult? Hell yes. I literally like when she's going to get the, the potion and the head wakes up and goes, yo, Dorothy girl. I, like, I, I literally said, oh, this is so great. If anyone hasn't seen the movie, there's a headless queen and she's got a room full of all the heads of other women that she's taken. And she has them preserved in this room of these glass display cases. And so Dorothy goes to get this potion she needs 
one the the woman's original head is sleeping right by the potion, and as she goes to get it, she she knocks a bottle. The head wakes up. All the other heads also wake up and start screaming. And then they got this low angle shot of the sleeping queen's headless body that stands up and extends its arms and starts like approaching Dorothy. It is fucking scary. <laughs> Terrifying. So in the, in that very scene you're talking about, Waylon, I was watching it with AE, and you don't see that she she's not wearing one of her heads for at first, and you hear yeah. snoring. And A said, does she have a special head just for sleeping? And, uh, <laughs> and I jokingly said, maybe she doesn't have a head on at all, and it's just her neck stump snoring and gurgling. And A laughed at it. We both laughed at it. And then... Her body pops up and there is no head. And, and I was like, oh, my God, it actually is her neck stump gurgling. And, and he was like, oh, my God, that's the most horrifying thing in the movie. And she was right. We were both like, ah, it was the neck oh stump God. gurgling and snoring the whole time. <laughs> oh, my God, I didn't really notice that. Oh, my God. Yeah, it is also the claymation. In this film, beautiful, uh-huh. terrifying as well. Yeah, I had to look it up because I was like, "Man, who did all the claymation in this?" The guy, the same guy that did another movie that is also a super creepy kids movie called "The Adventures of Mark Twain." I don't know if either oh, of you I seen have this. had the pleasure of seeing this film, but oh boy, you want to talk about nightmare fuel for kids? That's another one. I think it came out the same year as this too. But wow. he, yes, he directed that and saw and oversaw all of the, uh, the the claymation in that film as well. Also, am I the only person that thinks like when chickens talk in chicken voice <laughs> that that is like the funniest fucking thing ever? I don't know. It I'm is. Like, I, it is because it's the voice of the chicken talking. Oh, I don't think so. So Belina the chicken, I had to look it up because the voice was driving me crazy. Belina the chicken was also the junk lady from Labyrinth. Remember the old lady who carries all the junk on her back? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's cool. That's amazing. Uh, Also, uh, the actress that plays the queen with the hundred heads. Bav Morda. um, Yes, Bav Morda from Willow. (laughs) And the first, they they brought all this... All the silly actor trivia. The first head of Mombi, the young Mombi, the first time you see Mombi with a head on, that is the lead actress from Young Sherlock Holmes, the one who almost becomes a mummy at the end. Oh, wow. (laughs) Which I just rewatched this year. Okay. I've got to, we've got to find a reason to talk about Young Sherlock Holmes. That was a super cool movie, man. That Mm. that stained glass night that comes out. So groovy. That was so awesome. And I know Gary Kurtz was an executive producer on this as well. Gary Kurtz, for those who don't know, he was the producer for the original uh, Star Wars films. Mm. Except he, and we know what's funny is he wasn't involved in Jedi. And what makes me laugh about that is because he, him and Lucas had disagreements about Jedi. He went, I think you're going too kid friendly, you know, with the Ewoks and stuff. I think Han Solo should die. Blah, 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 blah. I want to do something more substantial. Then he goes off and he makes the Dark Crystal and Return to Oz, (laughs) which, and I think he was right, even if I'm sure uh, his pocketbook didn't quite agree with him. Yeah, poor Gary Kurtz. He he was way ahead of his time, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think he lost a lot of money on a film called Slipstream with Mark Hamill. Like, he invested his own money in that, so... Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. I think he he lost a bunch on that. It did not Mm. do well. 
I don't think hardly anyone's seen Slipstream. But no, I it never is worth checking that. out. But yeah, I guess like the re- they had to reduce the scope of this film as well. Uh, I know that the Scarecrow and the Tin Man were going to be like much more predominant in the original film as well, as opposed to just sort of like seeing them towards the end of the film. They were actually going to be much more involved characters. It is something. This film. It is truly. Uh, Pure nightmare fuel. There is so, <laughs> there is so much. Like I, I can't imagine how many adults now might have the, the just things that were implanted by this movie and may not even know. Like how many wonderful fetishes do you think were born from the scene where Mombi is riding her chariot and furiously whipping the prostate wheelers <laughs> as they race to warn a rock monster about a chicken? That's just like there must be. Like, who knows what came out you of You go that. to your dominatrix and you're like, okay, but I gotta get to the chicken. Say the chicken. <laughs> so. <laughs> it, it's just, it's one of a kind. Everything about it. Also, TikTok. We haven't even really talked about TikTok. Love TikTok. Uh, oh, so great. Uh, really beat the whole, like, young uh, Gen Z trend uh, to the punch, you know, TikTok did. Anyway, bad jokes. <laughs> I'm a dad now. I'm a really, I'm a, I'm a dad now. I gotta make them. Um... <laughs> But yeah, no, TikTok's a really impressive uh, animatronic overall. Uh, but I under, I guess it wasn't entirely animatronic. I guess someone mm-hmm. was inside of it, but they were yeah. upside down. Maneuvering the yeah. feet, I think. Yeah, they Walking were on the that with their hands. With their hands. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. so that's why it has that lumbering kind of quality to it. And the wheelers, man, that had to be a painful rig yeah like have these like stilts with wheels but if you see any of the behind the scenes stuff in this it's really impressive these guys are just skating around each other and like doing all these tricks and move they're all like pros there's the you know the the jack the pumpkin head character and i remember as a kid watching the nightmare before christmas going where do i where have i seen this guy before return to oz yep yep yeah that yoink burton is on record saying Jack the actually it's I don't even think it was Jack Pumpkinhead from the books. I think it was Jack Pumpkinhead from this movie that was the uh the sort of uh the, the spark that grew Jack Skellington, also named Jack. Yeah. He really did give a lot of character attention to these side characters. They weren't just throwaway, they have one little like particularly TikTok, I love his placard that says guaranteed to do everything but live. Yeah. Because I loved the implication that you can think, because and they make this point, you can think, move, take action, affect the world, speak. You can do all of this without technically being alive. And then he has the uproariously funny but really dark line, I am not alive and never will be, thank goodness. And I, yeah. and I remember I, tur- <laughs> I turned to A. I turned to AE and I was like, these days, TikTok man, sometimes uh, I'm jealous of you. I was like, I feel you, buddy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But but that's just it's really great. It's just great character development built into what he is. And I love that the whole aesthetic is like kind of early 1900s too. Because TikTok mm. looks like he just came off the front lines. If a if like a steampunk robot <laughs> was in World War One, that's what TikTok looks mm-hmm. like to me. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, he's got a doughboy hat on. Yeah, he does. Yeah. yeah, and the mustache and like <laughs> that it moves up and down and like I, I thought that was a great design element. What else? What else? What else we got to talk about with this film? What else? What other thoughts do you guys have about Return to Oz? I just have a personal aside that. Um... You know, I I don't remember this film coming out, but I remember that my older sister had a Return to Oz calendar, which I uh, Googled, actually, before we watched this, just to make sure I didn't 
you know, was this a real thing? And it was. And so I remember <laughs> loving the, uh, the pictures in it. They were just, you know, neat. And I was already, as a little kid, I already liked old movie monsters and stuff like that. So I was like, okay with it. And so we must have rented the film, which I then found totally disturbing and then every time I went by that calendar, I had a whole different relationship to it. It was far more like, like don't turn the page. I don't want to know what's next. <laughs> it's probably Mombi. Yeah, it's probably the Wheelers again. <laughs> That's great. That's fantastic. Yeah, I wonder how much like you know psychiatric work people have had to have before <laughs> this film. But which is a shame because you know I found it very like. I was genuinely touched by the film watching it now. You know, when they got to the end, I, I was, I, I felt uplifted. I felt the uh, emotional uh, arcs for Dorothy with all of the side characters were totally felt organic. You know, I, I was rooting for everybody. Like it, it genuinely works. You know, I think being disturbing was kind of built into its DNA. It's just, uh, you know, like you guys were saying, it's sort of ahead of its time that way. It's crazy that they do the tie-in, much like the original Wizard of Oz, where, like, the characters from the farmhouse are, like, you know, the characters, yeah. you mm-hmm. know, in the in the story. And this time it's the characters in the asylum. Yeah. Yeah. It was genuinely satisfying to see Mombi in the cage being trotted out like a prize, you know, yeah. Ozma <laughs> is free. And then to go to the real world, quote-unquote real world, and see Nurse Wilson... In in the paddy wagon behind the cage, yeah, yes. it was like ah, oh, that, yeah. work, that works, yeah. Which I didn't quite understand. Like, why did she get taken? To I don't know. They don't. <laughs> yeah, they don't yeah. really go into that. Like, there was a fire at the asylum, but like, why would someone be carted off in like a paddy wagon at the end? Did she cause the fire or something? Or yeah, like, they, they, they didn't, really, didn't really. Yeah, I just yeah. got it. I it was like a satisfactory. Like, oh look. Good, a good triumph over evil or whatever, <laughs> even in the real world. We haven't even touched on Nicole Williamson. Yeah. I think probably will always be, to my generation, Merlin from the uh, incredible, still to this day, greatest adaptation of Arthurian legend, uh, John Borman Excalibur. Excalibur. But he's pretty great as the Gnome King. Absolutely. Oh my God, yes. Although it is so weird when he, like, shows off the ruby slippers. <laughs> I know. They've got him in all these, like, crazy clay-looking, or I guess not clay, but, like, like stone-looking yeah. prosthetics. And then he's, like, this rock man, this giant rock man with these, like, red ruby slippers. <laughs> I love that. And that he's, like, wearing them all the time. Like, he wasn't, he didn't put them on before she shows up. He put, he's just been sitting there wearing he's the ruby been slippers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where it gives him all his power and stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it's like, it's just such an odd visual. I've It's always struck me, even as a kid, I'm always like, that is just so oddball looking to me. It's a little kinky. It works. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I like it. Did anybody else think, uh, I mean, I thought of it too, because Gary Kurtz is involved with it, but is the end, is it just me or is the end just like Star Wars? Like, not the end end, but like when they're doing the whole parade and yes. stuff in yes. Oz. It's, Yes. Yeah. Totally. One of my Star favorite Wars vibes. Love that scene, by the way. That that scene, I I had to watch it a couple of times. It's really great. It's such a big production, too. There's so many extras. There's so like the Emerald City's back. They put a lot into that for this, like just like like probably like four or five minutes of screen time. But mm-hmm. and it finally kind of brings back Ozma. And that is my one maybe gripe with the film is sort of how Ozma is 
she's kind of almost got this sort of like side B plot in the movie. You're like, okay, and then she's kind of mm-hmm. helping and stuff, and then oh, she comes out at the end, and you finally find out who she is and uh, her role and all this stuff. That was my primary complaint was that she was just sort of if you didn't already know about Ozma from the books, you would be like, what the heck is this thing floating around in mirrors and like this blonde what 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 and then it's just sort of thrown away at the end and explained in some exposition yeah somewhat it was like a small quibble for me really at that point i was so just like yeah this movie is so nuts yeah not enough to ruin anything but and we talked about piper laurie is a oh yeah no piper that's right we have not even touched on piper laurie wow yeah although i have a the hardest time seeing piper laurie not as an evil person (laughs) yes between twin peaks and carrie I cannot, especially Carrie. Oh my God! Wow, what a what a what a terrifying performance that is. The whole time I'm like, what's she up to? It is hard to see Piper Laurie, Auntie M. Yeah, I thought she was going to lock Dorothy in the closet and make her make her <laughs> pray. <laughs> any any other parting thoughts? Just. Dorothy doing Toto wrong from frame one, man. Just, it's all about, she's just replacing him with a chicken. I was like, "Mm, what are you doing, Dorothy? I love the fear of the chicken in this. I know, it's It's great. It's it's like, I mean, right from the get-go, it's like the little, like the creepy face in like the the stone made out of clay. And it's like, but there's something I need to do. What? What What is it? A chicken! <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> and then, like, le- the egg falls into the o- Gnome King's mouth, and it's just like, whoa. Oh, oh, oh. I mean, it, it's so good. I, I, I love that, like, what? What's going on? Oh, the Gnome King! <laughs> yeah, pound for pound, I think Belina the Chicken was the best animatronic in the movie. That thing looked so good. So realistic. It looked real. Yeah, it was. It, it looked like so, a real like, chicken. By today's standards, it looked photo real. I was like, this thing is ridiculously good. I was reading contemporary reviews. I think I read the Siskel and Ebert review of this, and they were saying that the chicken was a terrible sidekick. It was completely uh, irritating. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I loved her. Oh, I fully agree. And and yeah. so much comedy. I mean, just the whole known. Which and I had to look that up because it was no. It's all. It's all canon chickens are deadly chicken eggs are deadly to them that's all in the the bomb books apparently i was like oh wow okay this is (laughs) this is all actually part of the wizard of oz universe yeah no i remember those books being very strange i mean even the original wizard of oz book is much stranger than any uh film adaptation i've ever seen but yeah no the i think the books are genuinely creepy and i think like that's what merch went for. Merch went for a more closer adaptation of what Baum kind of threw on the page than I think anybody anybody else has. All right. Well, I actually have really fond memories of all these films. And honestly, for the most part, I think a lot of them really hold up. Let's just kind of talk a little bit about the kids' movies of our childhood. I mean... They were much darker and much edgier. I mean, it wasn't just Disney. There was, as we mentioned, Dark Crystal. There was Labyrinth. There was Legend uh, that Ridley Scott did. There was The Last Unicorn and Secret Mm -hmm. of Nim. Yeah, just way edgier kids movies than would ever be made today. I don't know. What are your kind of thoughts on just the kids movies of this time? 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me because we'll probably never see anything like this again. I mean, these were kids' movies made by the boober generation who had already made Hollywood more edgy with films like Dog Day Afternoon and The Godfather, who probably thought they could similarly revolutionize or at least sort of change the nature of children's entertainment in the 1980s. So sort of an experiment, but obviously it, it you know, didn't quite work. Gray, what would you think? What did you think about all these kids' movies? Yeah, I mean, that that, that definitely could be true and uh, an experiment that didn't work <laughs> but i mean it, it worked for, it certainly i mean it worked, worked just i mean it, it didn't it, work in the way that they wanted it to <laughs> the uh, cash flow <laughs> sense of the, of the but it, but it certainly yeah. worked in building a cult following later i mean it made all of us the people we are now so uh and the filmmakers that we are now uh, i'm uh, very curious to see how that'll pan out with yeah with filmmakers our age and people who get into making family entertainment now people who are 40 50 60 year old filmmakers now who get into making children's movies it's such an interesting time and like it's there's the only film from the disney canon like i'd mentioned that kind of has any lineage from this period is tron you know they they never they've never made a condor man ride at disneyland uh which i'm <laughs> very very disappointed about yeah really uh, i would i would love a return to oz ride and a something wicked this way come at least give us a carousel or something a carousel yeah. maybe something yeah. then i have to something. go to disney yeah, a though. carousel yeah. with a carousel with interactive screens in front of it that that yeah. as you look de-age you or age you as yeah you're, as you're writing it as you're looking shit. at yourself you, yeah, come on you could do a watcher in the woods slash something wicked hall of mirrors or something yeah. fun house so and you know see different things in the in the mirrors as you go yeah. by and occasionally see karen Yes. Oh, no. Oh, that'd be great. Yes. Yes. Well, that was a lot of fun to go down memory lane like that. Coming up next month, we will be discussing something completely different, as Monty Python says. We will be discussing the filmography of Ninja Master himself, Sho Kasugi. We will be discussing the films Revenge of the Ninja, Ninja 3 of the Domination, Pray for Death, and Nine Deaths of the Ninja. Are you guys ready to switch from Disney to, to Ninja films? Are you guys? <laughs> Absolutely. This will be fun. I haven't seen any of those movies, so this will be interesting. Yes. Amazing. Amazing. Gray, have you seen any of those Ninja films we're about to Same here. Into? Not a one. So I, really? I, I am Fantastic. Pu- yeah, I am I am excited to show you these gems. Oh, boy. It's going to be a good old time. And uh, make sure that wherever you're listening to your podcast, please follow us. And also, please, uh, if you have the time, please rate us as well. That helps us get found by the algorithm. And if you want, please follow us on our social media pages. Check out the uh, description in the podcast description to find us on Facebook and Instagram and uh, also on Letterboxd and YouTube. So, uh, well, thank you so much for tuning in this month. And remember, be kind as we rewind. Folks, if you liked what you've heard, please don't forget to rate us and follow us so you never miss a discussion. We air a new episode the last Wednesday of every month.